Our central text this morning is from John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God. Thank you, Kristen. Hey, good morning. I'm Chaz. You probably know that by now because last night I was on the news, apparently, my feet were. Uh, and so I'm sure you all know now who I am after that. So when I walked in here this morning, I did the jingle jog yesterday, and they said, you were on the news last night, but it's just your feet. I'm like, how did you know that? <laughs> like, oh, they recognize my dog, so that's how. So anyway, but... Um, uh, switching gears to a little more somber note, I want to start with prayer and a little bit of announcement. Um, Paul Mason, who's one of our members here, been a, um, he was a rolling elder actually at a previous church in uh, New Jersey. Uh, as you know, he was brought home on Thursday. Some of you do know, if you didn't know that, he was brought home Thursday for hospice. So uh, we're nearing the end. was able to be with him a couple times this week and hope to see him tomorrow, but we're at the very end and family's coming in Monday and Tuesday. So um, just love to just give that to the Lord, okay? So, Lord, we, um, we thank you for lives well-lived, uh, fighting the fight and finishing the race all the way to the end, waging war even against his own sin at the very end and trusting you, and to sit there with somebody who says they're ready, who really believes it's literal that the resurrection is true. He does, and many of us here do believe that. But to see it at the end, Lord, is so comforting. Paul's about to be reborn, in a sense, and step foot and break through that barrier and step foot into the kingdom of God. And we do rejoice in that, but we know there's so much sadness uh, among the family. And so we, we love Paul, and we thank you that he got to be part of this church for several years. And I know uh, this is probably on in the background right now as he's sitting in his own bed. Um, so... Lord, I just pray you'd encourage them somehow here in your name. Amen. Um, so several years ago, uh, during Thanksgiving, my wife and I were at my in-laws, and we got into a bit of a kerfluffle, okay? And I was centered on the fact that I was right about everything, and she was wrong, as you might have already guessed. Um, and by the way, she's not here this morning. It's not because of this sermon illustration. Uh, but if she was here, she would agree with me on what I just said there that I was right and she was wrong. Uh, but <laughs> we get in a fight at my in-laws during Thanksgiving. And my starry-eyed, and I have a great brother-in-law, but he was starry-eyed, brandly new married with him and his wife. They witnessed this fight. And, you know, I kind of forgot about it, to be honest with you. And so when we arrived for Christmas, completely put that past me. And I'm eagerly awaiting to get the gift from my brother-in-law because he's really... Uh, thoughtful. He gives the best gifts. He makes a lot of them with his own hands. But when I got a gift, I could just immediately tell him, like, this is a book. <laughs> well, I guess he didn't make this one, you know. And it wasn't just any ordinary book. When I opened the book, the title went something like this, The Godly Marriage, 10 Steps to Repairing a Marriage in Need of Help, <laughs> you know. And my, my mother-in-law, who's probably watching this, they typically watch, she, she didn't see what I opened, so she was like, what'd you get? <laughs> you know? I'm like, 
um, it's a book on marriage. You know, as a pastor, it'd be really helpful for me to refer to others, you know. And, but how do you think I received that gift? I held it, I hid it under a sweater. But I'll tell you how I think you uh, received that gift. I didn't cheerfully, like, look what I got, everybody. A book on how to fix my marriage, you know. I received it like you would this year if in eight days from now you got a gift from your spouse. And the first one you open is, oh, a year-long membership to Planet Fitness. Well, I don't know when I'll find the time to do that, but thanks. <laughs> and the second gift you open is, oh, a year-long subscription to HelloFresh. Well, that'll make meal prep easier, but wow, I'm going to eat a lot of kale in 2024. <laughs> We're getting healthier. We're getting more fit. Okay. Uh, third gift, the complete, a book. The Complete Body Overhaul, How to Lose Extreme Weight in One Year. How would you receive that? You'd start crying, wouldn't you? What is my point? I'm not trying to tell you what gifts not to give this year. What is my point? My point is this. Unto us, a child is given. A child is born. A child is given. And with that, it's the greatest gift we could all receive. Advent is that. But like the gift I got from my brother-in-law, it comes with an offense to our pride, a very sobering and humbling one. We've been studying the introduction to the Gospel of John for Advent this year. And, you know, the thing with Christmas, it's warm and fuzzy. It's, it, there's some whimsy to it, isn't there? But John skips all of those things that make it whimsical. There's no manger. There's no wise men. There's no angels on high, no shepherds in a field, no star, nothing. Instead, the introduction to the Gospel of John is really important to understanding Advent because he's telling what all those things mean. And what are those implications? And he's told us light had to come into darkness. Because it's not just that the world is dark on the Gaza Strip, it's dark in here, in our hearts. And in fact, what he's been saying is in the beginning, he's hearkening back that when Jesus came, it's a recreation because we've lost glory. We lost it in Genesis 3, and it needs to be restored. We need to be recreated. That is the story of Advent. We need a complete overhaul, and there is some offense to that. So let's take a look at the three things this morning. The Word made flesh, glory lost. We're going to be a bit theologically technical. Uh, it's going to be longer. I just really encourage you to dial in because there's really important things in there. And then two, the Word made flesh, glory restored, and the glory of the Word made flesh. Whoops, I don't know what I did. Someone's going to have to fix that. Uh, I'm not good at technology. So let's just take a look uh, at the first point. There we go. Thank you. Let's take a look at the first point. Now, um, the phrase, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. One of the challenges of preaching this passage is 2,000 years after all of this happened here in the West, this isn't really all that mind-blowing. God became man. He became human. 2,000 years ago, that was a shock and offense, and it is in large part in many places in the world. But we don't, we don't wrestle with this concept. God became man. Now, like 30 years ago, we did. There was like a one-hit wonder from Joan Osborne. Do you remember this one? It's hard not to sing it in the voice of Mike Myers playing Dr. Evil, but nevertheless, I will do it. What if God... <laughs> what if... Remember this song? What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. That's the last time we've wrestled with it, but you know what? I'll be honest with you. John 1.14, is he saying that? I mean, we look at it and say, wait, slob? Well, that's a bit much. 
But that's what he's doing. See, when he said the word became flesh, he's, you know, he's communicating. He's gone to great lengths in the first 13 verses of saying God became, you know, Jesus is divine. He's the word. He's the second person of Trinity. He's God. He was there in creation. So he's been trying to prove the divinity, but here he's trying to really help us understand the humanity of Jesus. And I think what's really important is understand at this point, he could have used any Greek word. He could have said he became a human being. That was a word he could have used. He could have said he became a man. But instead, John intentionally uses the most crude word possible. It's the Greek word sarx, flesh. Let me just tell you what it literally means. It means uh, the earthly nature of man apart from divine influence. Okay, now he's not saying Jesus wasn't divine. He's already proven that. But he's saying not only that, sarx is prone to sin and it's opposed to God. Animal nature with cravings which incite to sin, the physical nature of man as subject to suffering. And what you got to know is the whole world at the time was saying that's not possible. Not possible. Subject to suffering? See, even the non-religious types, and they were the Greeks at the time, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, okay? I'm going to be a little bit technical here, but this word, word, it's the Greek word logos, it was a whole philosophical system that the Greeks believed. They believed the universe was cold and empty and impersonal. But we called it the logos, meaning that there were these universal principles that held the universe together. So if something was going wrong in your life, if you were suffering, the problem was is because, well, you just weren't living in accord with the logos. But the first 13 verses, John has said the logos is personal. It's Jesus Christ. You're, we're not alone. He's knowable. He's intimate. He's imminent. But when he says he became flesh, now we're starting to be really offensive here, and I'll tell you why. Because underneath that message is saying something is wrong. Something's broken about us. And we don't just have a knowable, personal God. He had to enter into time and space and take on flesh because something's broken in us. And see, even the Jews, the religious people at the time in the Jewish Talmud, it literally says if a man claims to be God, he's a liar. There's no way this is possible. If there's a holy God, he doesn't, he doesn't come into things that are tempted to lust and get angry. He doesn't take on flesh. And even Islam today, Muslims today, they, literally this is in the Quran. It says Allah begets not and was not begotten. The point is, 2,000 years ago, Nobody believed God, this would be possible. Nobody. Not one. Religious or non-religious. And I want to say this. The vast majority of Christians really stopped short of what this means. You know, the most orthodox Christian who's theologically precise would say, I know what this means. Yeah, Jesus had to become a man because Adam sinned, and original sin, and we all inherited that, and so Jesus Christ is our federal head. He came down to earth. He inherited all that. He became a human, so he lived a life for us and died on the cross for us in our sins. The end. That's not the end, is what John is saying. All of that is true. Jesus did every single bit of this, but one of the things that what he's trying to tell us is he's done something to our flesh, it's the larger story. And we see it here in Hebrews 2. 
we see in verse 9, you know, Jesus came and he came to suffer. He came to taste death for us. But all of a sudden, I really want you to pay attention. You get to verse 10, and all of a sudden he says, and it was fitting that he, for whom by all things exist, because he's divine, what did he also do? Brought many sons and daughters to glory. To glory. See, in 2001, it was my first year out of college. I worked in supply chain management for 10 years, and I had a job at the headquarters of the company in Chicago. And so, you know what I wanted to do? I'm like, well, I'm going to Cubs games. So I watched that on WGN growing up. I'm going to Bulls games. Man, that's the era. But I went to a Bulls game in 2001, two years after the last dance, if you will, right? And I'm walking around the, state, the arena, and I see the iconic statue of Michael Jordan, tongue out, it's the jump man, you know, and it's like, wow, I'm excited to be at a Bulls game, and I walk in, you know what? There's no Jordan, there's no Pippen, there's no Rodman, there's no John Paxson, not even Tony Kukoc is around at this time, right? 90s basketball, if you remember these things, okay? All gone. The glory had left the building, and that is what John is telling us. The glory has left the building because, see, the Bible is a story between two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before the tree of knowledge of good and evil, before Adam and Eve partake of it, what were they? They were glorious beings. God walked among them. Like, there's no temple. There's no tabernacle. We're told when Moses encountered God, just came even close to him, his face was radiant. Imagine their faces. Think about it. They were gardening in the middle of the day like it was normal and then just went and took walks with God at the end of the day. They were radiant. They were glorious. Because they partook of that tree, we lost that glory. But the promise is on the other side of another tree, the tree of life. We are told that this is our destination. We will be like Jesus Christ. We will be glorious again. When John says, and the word became flesh, the next sentence is, and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. And it's, it's literally the Greek word for tabernacled. Okay? But he's trying to convey something about that tabernacle that was a problem. And we see it in Exodus, okay? God came to dwell with us. He's made, if you read the resource document, there are 14 verses in a row that say, and you, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. It's all over the Bible. It's right there. God is trying to bring us back to Eden again. And he did so at first with a tabernacle. But there was a problem with it. And what is it? The glory of the Lord filled it. That sounds wonderful. The problem is, is Moses couldn't get in there. Why? Because the glory was in there. It was too much glory for Moses. The representative for God's people, he's going to die if he gets into the tabernacle. But what's the point? He didn't have the glory to enter into in there. What this is trying to tell us is just like my brother-in-law was trying to tell me, something's off. You're not living as you were meant to be. The gift of Advent is a promise for glory, but it also starts with, and that glory is not in you if you don't have Christ in your life. You're not as you should be. It's a message, is what Advent is, from the outside saying, 
You are not what you were meant to be. You were designed for glory, and you don't have that without Christ. And I want to say, if you don't believe a word of what I'm saying, I, what I'm about to say, I know you'll believe. You know this is intuitively true, and I'll tell you why. Because you know the truth. If anybody tabernacles next to you or me, anyone who gets close to us will see that. There's some glory missing. Anyone who gets close to us will see that there are things that need to change. Now, it has been 24 years since I've been on a first date. But I will never forget. Yeah, you know what it's like. How many of it, do you remember first dates? Some of you are on them right now. You're wanting one right now, okay? <laughs> My wife might be wanting one after this sermon illustration with somebody else. I don't know. I hope not. Just kidding. And you know, you know what it is? What happens on the first date? It's like, oh my gosh, the glory of this person. They're perfect. I've spent all my life and I've never met such a perfect person. You know what's even more perfect about this person? They think I'm perfect. They, all my friends, all these people, all of my life have never seen my glory except for this perfect person. All right, well, then what happens in between date one and date two? Now in this world, it wouldn't exist when I was dating, but you could go do a deep dive on somebody's social media, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, whoa. They posted what thing politically? Uh, ooh, I don't know about that. Or maybe they do a deep dive on you, and all of a sudden you enter into a second date, and all of a sudden the gluster's starting to go away a little bit. But you're saying, you know, I'll, I'll stick through it. I'll go to date three, go date three. And all of a sudden, you arrive date three, and your walls are up. And the laughter is not flowing easily. You're uncomfortable. You're wondering if you're wasting your time. What happened? Somebody got up close and personal to you, and you got up and close and personal to them. And that's a cold, hard truth that scares the heck out of us. And it's why we keep people such at a distance. But we owe this. And it's true for all of us. Because deep down, you know it, there are so many, there are plenty of things that need changing about you and I. Don't, isn't that true? I mean, some of you have left small groups. And you've gotten in the car and you start letting yourself have it. You say, why did I say that stupid thing? <sighs> Man, these people, they probably think I'm a lunatic. I'm not going back. Or you leave a meeting and you just like, like I was rude. I didn't, I didn't want to be rude, but it just happened. Why did I do that? Or maybe you're battling something. Maybe you're battling an addiction. You keep saying, I'm going to not do this, and I'm, you know, it's going to stop, and you keep doing it. You're saying, what is going on? Here's what's going on. Advent is a message that you and I need a complete overall glory to be recreated all right we'll, we'll be much quicker from here on out there's a powerful scene in the movie the 1997 film goodwill hunting and i would show it to you but the language is way too colorful for church and it's emotionally charged it's hard to get out of but will hunting played by matt damon has everybody seen this yet if you haven't something's wrong with you you need jesus and to watch this movie okay just kidding um but he's brilliant Will Hunting is brilliant, literally, off the charts IQ, uh, but rough childhood, foster care, beaten by his father. I mean, just brutal, brutal childhood, rough, rough. So obviously he doesn't let people in. He's really scared of intimacy, but he's got, he's got a couple close rough and tumble Bostonian friends that he's let get close. He's drinking buddies and 
all that. But he doesn't let people close except for he meets, meets this girl, played by Minnie Driver, Skyler. And Skyler's a student at Harvard, of all places. And he starts doing what? He starts letting her in. He starts letting her in. And towards the end of the movie, it's starting to get too much. And he's like, okay, you're, you're tabernacling too close to me now. This is freaking me out. Oh, you want to move to California now? Oh, you, you're going to grad school at Stanford. And they're getting an argument because she wants him to move with him. And he refuses. And she just calls him out and says, what aren't you scared of? You live in this safe little world where nobody challenges you and you're scared poopless. That's the edited version. To do anything else you're scared to do anything else but defend yourself because that would mean you'd have to change what a line but he rep- he says to her oh no don't no no skyla don't tell me about my world okay <laughs> i'll stop the matt damon thing don't tell me about my world i mean you just want to have a fling with the guy from the other side of town and then you're going to go off to Stanford and you're going to marry some rich prick who your parents will approve and just sit around with the other trust fund babies and talk about how you once went slumming too. There are a lot of Christians come to this and they're like, I've heard the Greek word for dwell is the word tabernacle. Isn't that wonderful? God came to earth once and temporarily dwelled among us. I guess he once went slumming too. What an awful message. How unattractive and not true. Athanasius, early church father, third century, says this. Christ became what we are that we might become what he is. This is the marvelous exchange When the Jews use the term dwelt, tabernacle, it's a term Shekinah glory. We've probably all heard that right now and then, but it's like, what does that mean? It meant dwelling, glory. When John uses it, he's saying that was insufficient. Why? You heard it earlier, Exodus 40. What happened? Moses couldn't get in. But the promise is this, is Jesus became the tabernacle. He fulfilled and superseded all that the tabernacle did. But Jesus didn't just come here to go slumming once. He came after he left the promises. He put his spirit in another tabernacle, and that's you and me. He didn't just do it once. He's tabernacling right here, right now. And Jesus Christ sees the glory that you were designed to be today. And the promise of Hebrews 2.10 is he's doing it right now. Every time he defeats sin. Moses couldn't enter to God's glory. You know what God did? He put his glory inside us. And his glory shines out. I'm going to give now what is probably the weirdest sermon illustration, not only that I've ever told, but probably in the history of Christendom. I had a dream about Taylor Swift this week. <laughs> so let me tell you. First off, let me just say this. I'm not, I don't know how this happened. Okay? Like, 
I'm not a Taylor Swift fan. I don't dislike her, but I don't listen to her music. I only know what's going on in her life because of NFL, because Travis Kelsey, but I don't keep up. I'm not a Swifty like Derek is, for example. Uh, you know, but I had a dream about Taylor Swift, and in my dream, she was staying at one of our Airbnbs with a friend. It wasn't Travis Kelsey, so I don't know what that means either, but it wasn't Travis Kelsey. She was staying at one of our Airbnbs with her friends, and through the Airbnb app, she was messaging my wife saying, this place is so lovely. It's so beautiful. I mean, we are enjoying ourselves. It is just, it is so lovely. You've created such a beautiful space. And so in my dream, we start, we go up there. Of course, you know, in my dream, it looks nothing like in real life. It gets weird after that. But anyway, it's supposedly my, the Airbnb, but it looks nothing like it. But anyway, I show up, and she just raves. Like we talk to her face to face. And this is weird. I don't know if you can do this in your dreams, but in my dream, I was able to think subconsciously as she was talking to me. And as she's talking to me in my dream, I think to myself, this is all well and great, but Catherine, we need her to post this on Instagram. <laughs> And hashtag us, because our places would go viral if we did that. Now, I'm not Joseph. I don't know how to interpret dreams, but here's what I think that means, okay? (laughs) Deep down in my subconscious, I know the truth. She's got glory, doesn't she? In fact, as soon as I was done writing this sermon, if this was not a sign, I closed my computer. My wife is sick. She's on the bed, and she's reading People magazine, and Taylor Swift's on the cover, Time Person of the Year. I'm like, okay, I'm doing the illustration then. But she's got glory. And no matter how much my wife works hard at this and, you know, beautiful spaces and blah, 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 if Taylor Swift gave one endorsement of that place, it would change it forever, wouldn't it? It would go crazy. And not only that, for the rest of our lives, that place would always be known as the place Taylor Swift once dwelled. But see, this is the promise. John is saying, if you are a Christian Something bigger has literally happened, and it's happening today. It's already happened. Jesus literally dwells in you. And if something that glorious dwells in you, it reshapes the whole narrative, doesn't it? How you view yourself, how you think of it. I'm not the place Jesus once visited. You're the place Jesus resides in today. And that means something. It means he finds his home in you. And imagine what that means for your home. C.S. Lewis invites us to do so. He says, imagine yourself as living in a house, as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. And you know that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking down the house. And about in a way that hurts abdominally and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. Why? Because he intends to live there, and if you're a believer, he does. Ephesians 2. He says, Paul says, we are his workmanship, and that is another stunning Greek word. It's the Greek word poiema. 
from which we get the word poetry, art. And that's our story, if you're a believer. Between two trees, you lost glory. If you're a believer, you literally, I know this sounds sappy. Like, this is not how I roll. This stuff kind of like, like, okay, we're his poetry. But that is literally in the Greek, so I now have to believe it. Uh, what he's doing. That we are his art. This is where he gets to show his glory. Tim Keller puts it this way, so now you really have to believe it. Do you know what it means that you're God's workmanship? What is art? Art's beautiful, and it's valuable, and art's an expression of the inner being of the maker of the artist. Imagine what that means. You're beautiful. You're valuable. And you're an expression of the very inner being of the artist, the divine artist, God himself. You see, when Jesus gave himself on the cross, he didn't say, I'm going to die just so you know I love you. No, he said, I'm going to die, I'm going to bleed for your splendor. I'm going to recreate you into something beautiful. And I will turn you into something splendid and magnificent. I'm the artist and you are the art. I'm the painter, you're the canvas. I'm the sculptor, you're the marble. You don't look like much there in the quarry, but I can see it. Oh, I can see it. Jesus is an artist, and if you, if you, beloved, are his crowning achievement, you are his crowning achievement, his masterpiece. What is Jesus' glory? Where did Jesus show his glory? We might be tempted to say, I know. Walked on water, water into wine, healing the blame, the light, deaf, you know, all that. Multiplying. Oh, I know. I know what it is. He got up on a mountain and showed his glory, the transfiguration. That, that's it. That's his glory. And you know what? That's all true. All that showed Jesus' glory. But Jesus just straight up tells us, do you want to know what my glory is? You really want to know? Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. What hour would that be? This is after all the miracles. There's only one left, resurrection. He's saying, now is the time for me to truly show my glory, and what that hour is, is the cross. He is the grain of wheat going into the ground so something can be raised up. Sons and daughters of glory. Jesus' glory is this. His story is a riches-to-rags story so that ours could be a rags-to-riches story. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. 